Welcome to the first of this year's student lectures on missions. We're delighted to have those of you who are here in person, as well as the many who are joining us by Zoom. This is our first endowed lecture in 18 months, so it is a joy to be back on track once again. The Students' Lecture on Missions was established in 1893. It is a series of three lectures on a topic connected with Christian missions and of practical importance for those looking forward to Christian service. This year, we're honored to have as our lecturer, Dr. Claudio Carvajes. Dr. Carvajes currently serves as the Associate Professor of Worship at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where he has been on the faculty since 2016. Previously, he taught at McCormick Theological Seminary, Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Dr. Carvalhes is a native of Brazil and an ordained pastor in the PCUSA. He's recently published a new book titled Praying with Every Heart, Orienting Our Lives to the Wholeness of the World. He has also written three additional books in English and four books in Portuguese. An accomplished speaker, writer, and performer, he has preached at many venues in the United States, South America, and in Europe. Former McCormick Seminary President Frank Yamada said of Dr. Carvalhis, I can think of few leaders in theological education who inspire like Claudio. He has been on the cutting edge of cross-cultural worship within the Peace USA. He is a voice of liberation among communities of color, an advocate for young adults, and a prophetic presence among those who are pushing the church into the 21st century. The title of his lecture series is Fully Into the Present, Inventory, Metamorphosis, and Emergencies. At the conclusion of his lectures, he will take questions. And those of you who are watching it on Zoom should ask your questions on chat. Someone is monitoring the chat room and will vocalize your questions as well. Will you join me in welcoming Dr. Claudio Carvajes? So tonight, we are going to talk about the ways in which we have arrived here taking an inventory of a historical process that constituted us, not only as Christians, but as human beings. Tomorrow afternoon, we will talk about metamorphoses and the ways in which we need to change, move, be converted, and reorient our lives and our faith. And in the last lecture, I'll try to show some ways that we can listen to the emergencies and emergencies that are out there that can help us to uh, go through it and, and, and move along. We are at a place now that life is vanishing to an extent that we cannot predict our future anymore. We are right now challenged by questions of the very possibility of how to sustain life on this planet. Questions of, of, of resources, jobs, climate disasters, and life futures will haunt us for many years to come. And we are losing worlds upon worlds. And unless we drastically change, we will disappear much sooner than we thought. And with a level of suffering and despair that we have never predicted. So what is the place of the Christian theology, of, of, of the Bible, of, of history, of, of especially of liturgy and rituals and ministry for our present and our future? A future that is already here. So as you see, as a performer, I always use different clothes. And um, to, tonight, I think you understand why I have what I have. And every day, I will wear something different. And I always have videos and my uh, lectures, in my lectures and, and my ways of dressing as well, not only as sidekicks, but fundamental ways of expressing and using more senses in order to engage. 
So this lecture tonight is not an easy one. Uh, and I invite you to linger a little longer in a place of sorrow, fears, zones of absences. A space where violence and tragedies point to things done and so much to be undone. This isn't an inventory of celebrations, my friends, but an inventory of tragedies, war zones, abandonment, pain, death, and destitution. And if you pay close attention, this is bleak, but it's not bleak. It is a way out. And unless we go through that, we will not be able to create anything new. So I invite you to take up on your own inventory and linger there a little longer. So take my hand and let's explore this together. So we are going to have a movie now that uh, exterminate all the brutes and, and we are not going to have um, sound nor words, but just images of the movie. And, and, and Trigger warnings, there will be a lot of violence here and, and, and shots and, and, and killings. And so if that, it is complicated. So turn your, your, your chair to the side if you need or look to this side instead of look there. But it is a way of all of these three ways of, of getting into the inventory. So here we go. The notion of inventory I'm using here is an Activity to revisit our past and name what has brought us this far. It is a way to call forth Walter Benjamin's angel of history and look to the past while we are moving into the future. For we cannot look forward if we don't keep looking back to see the pilages of disasters we have created. Check the debris of the destructions we have piled up and the corpses of bodies we have accumulated up to now. I learned about this from the invent of inventory with Edouard Said in his book Orientalism. And he borrowed this term from Gramsci's notebooks, and you have that in your, in your papers. The starting point of critical elaboration is the consciousness of what one really is and is knowing thyself as a product of the historical processes to date, which has deposited in you an infinity of traces without leaving an inventory. That's the key. That's the key part. Said says that the English translation deleted the following phrase, who makes it not a choice but a demand. The phrase deleted was, therefore, it is imperative at the outset to compile such an inventory. And Said says, in many ways, my study of Orientalism has been an attempt to, to inventory the traces upon me. The oriental subject of the culture whose domination has been so powerful a factor in the life of all orientals. So for the most part, I've been trying to do that here as well. Growing up as a Presbyterian, I grew up, I was born in a Presbyterian church who gave me everything. I learned soon the first lines of John Calvin's Institutes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say. True and sound wisdom consists of two parts. What are they? The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. To know myself and to know God is to know what Jesus said. One does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. But bread never comes alone. Bread entails a whole chain of networks that goes from the land where the wheat is planted, the people who harvest it, the owners of the land, the people who harvest it, the industries that prepare it, the middle people who bring it to the supermarkets, the owners of the supermarket, its employees, etc., etc. Thus, to live on every word that also comes from the mouth of God. It is to check the history and figure out how God's word happened and where and with whom and what for. I believe that this is what also Gramsci is referring to 
when he talks about an inventory of our lives. We are a product of historical processes to date, which has deposited in you an infinity of traces without leaving an inventory. The infinity of traces is endless and shapes who we are, yet remains unknown, hidden, erased from us. It is somewhat like capitalism who shows us the clean product on a store window but hides the brutality of manufacturing and owners' exploitation of workers. Or like Christianity without the historical processes of colonization. These traces have been turned into traumas, the aftermath of violence that turned us incapable of fully integrating those horrors and disasters into our lives. The destitution of the horrifying events linger unresolved, bringing madness to our ways of living. These traces are open wounds, despised by means of production and poorly mended by a poor faith that stitches it with fear, anxiety, a form of hope, and for the most part, abstractions. We are left like a Frankenstein, spooky to our own selves, not, on, not knowing how to attend to these wounds properly. Yes, we carry infinity of traces of coloniality that leave no inventory in us. This infinity of traces are sedimentation of somebody else's histories, knowledges and feelings, lies, ways of being that unrelated to us, that delink all of us from the connections that once constituted our world. Infinity traces are the ways of being ripped apart from the core of our being. This infinity of traces weight on our bodies and we carry more forgetfulness than remembrances. We end up split in our relationship to the land. We either think we are religious identities without connections to the, with the land or connection through the land by way of a country as the possession of a land by a nation state. We have learned that our connection to the land we inhabit goes through patriotism. And that notion of patriotism is not but a cluster of traces that erases us and prevents us from the deep relation with the land where we most fully belong. We have turned our land to a country. And most national anthems of every country is also a form of subjugation of the land and the displacement of the natural world with values of patriotism. We can call it manifest destiny, American exceptionalism, progress, a greatest nation on, in the world. But what we have had it is the infinity of traces defeating indigenous people in order to own the land. Colonialism is a way of inverting the indigenous saying that is, that is not we who own the land, but the land who owns us. And for those historical processes, we have been already lost. This infinity of traces to us is also what anthropologist Eduardo Viveiros de Castro said, reminding uh, uh, Yanomami Shaman called Davi Kopenauer. He said, we spend too much time with our spirit turned inward, brutalized by the same old dreams of greed and conquest and empire that came in the caravels, with our heads increasingly filled with forgetfulness, immersed in a tenebrous existential emptiness, only rarely illuminated throughout our less than glorious history by flashes of political, poetic, and scientific lucidity. I believe the Palestinian uh, poet uh, Mahmoud Darwish in his poem, The Owl's Night, mightily expressed this infinity of traces Gramsci mentions as it relates to timeless present. You have it in your hand, 
It's a long uh, poem. And it says, there is here a present not embraced by the past. When we reached the last of the trees, we knew we were unable to pay attention. And when we returned to the sheep, we saw absence piling up its chosen objects and pitching its eternal tent around us. There is here a timeless present, and here no one can find anyone. No one remembers how we went out the door like a gust of wind and at what our hour we felt from yesterday and then yesterday shattered on the tide, tiles in shards for others to reassemble and to mirrors reflecting their images over ours. There is here a placeless present, perhaps a candle. I can handle my life and cry out in the owl's night. What this condemned man, my father, who burdens me with his history, was, who was he? Perhaps I will be transformed within my name and I will choose my mother's words and way of life exactly as they should be. There is here a transient present. Let us linger with this poem a little bit. We live in a present not embraced by the past. Because our past has the power to keep taking away what we have. To have hundreds of precious children in jails in Tennessee and other states right now takes away the pride to be the greatest nation on earth. If we are to talk about what we have done to the native people in this country, we would have to give this land back to them. Acknowledgement alone would not suffice. If we talk about slavery and racism, we will have to restore what was stolen from black people. One of the main arguments against critical race theory now everywhere in, in schools and the fight for it not to be thought anymore is that it sows divisions. That's what it says, right? Look, they say, we can all come as one. We are all equal. Forget this racial theory, for it only induces hatred. That white argument holds the fear that if we embrace the past and bring it into the present, we can't keep the ways we currently live. The same thing with the Palestinians. If we bring the recent past and what is happening to them right now, we will have to create an ample system of restoration. Was this condemned man my father who burdens me with his history? And so we keep our commitment to Israel and, and lift up Uncle Tom's heroes, all of them white, to carry the anger and vengeance we need to be protected White supremacy then is the safety blanket for America and all who are people of color feel that. And James Baldwin mentions that about how we worship legends out of massacre. He says, I despise and feared Uncle Tom. Heroes, because they did take vengeance into their own hands. They thought vengeance was theirs to take. And yes, I understood that. My countrymen were my enemy. I suspect that all these stories are designed to reassure us that no crime was committed. We've made a legend out of a massacre. Our Christian faith does not cry for the horrors of our past either. No wonder our liturgies are safe place for some people, but not so much of a safe place for people of color. We don't have languages against racism. Our theologies are white with very little color and no trace of indigenous thinking anywhere. The pillaging then con continues. To wrap our presence with our past is to show us who we are and where we come from. And it is to connect ourselves with indigenous and black people and those who are destituted but who are part of ourselves. So this is not a, a, a talk of hatred here, right? 
It is, it is it's the homework that we all need to do in order to make the Christian faith to mean something. But because we cannot have the past into the present, it's hard for our churches to name racism in our worship services as well. There is here a present not embraced by the past. The walk of almost 600 years under coloniality has been exhausted, bloody, bloody, merciless, brutal, year after year, punch after punch, diseases, stealing and, and, and bullets flying over the heads of precious people who once lived in this land and other enslaved black bodies. Our forests, too, in the same way are cut off, our rivers polluted, animals decimated, entire biomes extinguished. The violence is so immense, it shivers the back of our necks, takes away our breath and hinder us traumatized, paralyzed, without being able to internalize all of the wounds that we go through. Our cognition is always dissonant, wore off, discombobulated, not able to find meaning or relationalities. It is a way of losing the very core of one's life and the very ability to breathe. Eric Garner, George Floyd, they, their, their deaths are screaming about the ways in which we cannot breathe. And every theological study that talks about life has to talk about the breath of those brothers. A scream not heard due to the brutality of police, but also a brutality that dominates this land. That scream from the past still echoes in our present. With them, peoples, animals, forests, seas, rivers, birds, and soil, they're always screaming, I can't breathe. But their cries haven't been heard yet. Instead, the natural world and the animals' homes have been brutally dismantled by capitalist corporations, agribusiness, mining, mineral, fossil and logging industry, food chains, dams, all of it depleting life elsewhere, everywhere. The same thing that we did to some people is the same thing that we do also to the people that we call natural world. But shouldn't we follow a compassionate God? How have our ears been educated that we cannot hear some screams? They are mute to our theologies, to our liturgies, ecclesiologies, and mission. The same way we can't hear people here or in Palestine screaming, I can't breathe. People with COVID everywhere dying out of lack of air. And some quietly, some screaming in hospital beds or poor houses saying, I cannot breathe. So many kids all around the world right now becoming orphans due to the death of their, their parents. They are screaming, I can't breathe. The brutality of power over depriving people from their ability to breathe and exist is everywhere. Can we hear it? What kind of ears our theologists open us up to hear? What are the sounds that we are educated to listen to? In his new book, Achille Mabembe uses the term brutalism to define our times. He says, brutalism is a contemporary process whereby power is constituted, is expressed, it is reconfigured, it acts and reproduces itself as a geomorphic force through processes that include fracturing, fissuring, emptying vessels, drilling, expelling organic matter in a world, what I term depletion. In this essay, I invoke the notion of brutalism to describe an area dominated by the pathos of demolition and the production on a planetary scale of reserves of obscurity. 
Brutalism is a way, uh, always a violence to the body, to the flesh and bones, to its organs, to the immunological system that we have. Brutalism is a violence to the embodiment of reality, modes of perceptions, sexualities and gender configurations, color, places and forms of belongings. That is, it is a violence against knowledges that hold different forms of wisdom that are manifested through the uses of the senses that are foreign to us, that we keep saying it doesn't make sense. But also, brutalism is a violence to the body in, in our psyche, the structure of thinking, feeling, and the capacity to enter symbolic creation, rituals, and relations. Brutalism is the inoculation of an infinity of traces of violences in the bodies of people. Brutalism is a planetary event overarched by European universalism. What was created in villages in Europe by individuals became universal truth that people follow in their own villages now. Ramon Grossfogel, for example, called this universal colonial European thinking epistemicide. Jewish uh, sociologist Santiago Slabodsky, in his book, The Colonial Judaism, Triumphal Failures of Barbaric Thinking, tackles this uniform way of thinking by complexifying narratives and knowledges from the south and the north of the globe, showing that in spite of endless colonial attempts to even out discourses and perceptions by naming those as enemies, barbarians, Mixed and blurred forms of knowledges have survived, still showing us that are possible. Different worlds to live together. Worlds that modernity keep trying to erase, to destroy, by showing they are not distinguishable, pure, honest, worthy of our consideration. What is the breath in our worship services, my friend? What breathe, what breath do you breathe in our worship services? Mahmoud Darwish speaks so powerfully about touching the last trees still standing. Yes, mother trees. Oh, thank you. Put it here. Mother trees are being ripped apart, and new trees don't have the strength to grow anymore to engage with the climate change. We are indeed, and this is not a metaphor, we are indeed touching the last trees. We only have 20% of forests left in the world that takes hundreds of years to be there. And I don't know how many trees will be left for my kids to touch. They are 10, 14, and 16. It is the breath of God, the, breath, the breathing of the trees, or, or, or the trees is just a metaphor. And when we returned to the ships, we saw absence piling up its chosen objects and pitching its eternal tent around us. Brutalism has piled up traces of absences in our histories, memories, theologies, prayers, songs, without land in our theologies. We forgot that the land needs care, relation, and an economy of gifts. Without remembering our connection, that's what brutalism did to take away our connection to the earth. So capitalism started a process of production with the land that only searches for profit. Our ways of living became production, control, mastery. Isn't this what we pursue in our schools? Production, works. Don't we all want scholars to master their fields? Where in our worship services that is supposed to honor God? What are the sacred objects that are connected to the earth? We have baptism, but you have no connection with any river nearby. We have Eucharist, 
but you have no idea where the seeds or the grapes or the wheat came from. I often place you know, uh, soil on top of Eucharistic tables, altars, depending where you belong. And the reaction is always of anger and disgust. As if the soil and the seeds are dirty in relation to the sacred bread and the wine. Absences of relationships piled up in our own sanctuary. Our abstract faith turns us into abstract believers, while capitalism eats up both our concrete world, concrete worlds and our abstract faith. We are so afraid we give more energy to, to protect a tradition than to relate this tradition with other traditions and the earth. We have lost our way of sharing worlds, but instead we want to hold on to ours. Dignity, honor is only on our side because we still somewhat have a desire to conquer something. Our epistemology still has this kind of dominance over something. And we do that for God, in the name of God. We did that to native and black people, and we are now doing, we have been doing this to the land all along. Not realize that we are doing it to ourselves, to all of us, pitching its eternal tent of brutalism around us. Oh, we are locked in this timeless present. An eternal now that trains us to fight for survival, survival of the fittest. Who among you here are going to get the larger churches of the denomination? Woo, that's the thrilling part. We just don't realize that this thrilling part is also our demise as a denomination. The distinction between a poor church and a rich church, it is just a matter of fact. And I think that's what capitalism did to us. Because capitalism thrives on crisis. And politicians are paid to create crisis that do not went, and then they become the organizers. They are there to manage those crises they create. That is, they announce the crises that are coming, and then they promise safety that only they alone can offer us. There is less democratic participation nowadays and more oligarchy control. The destitution of social welfare, welfare net, the absence of the government for the poor, the lack of basic support for people, limitations of health insurance, less resources to the elderly and young children, the growth of homeless people, the increase of mental illness, everything is deteriorating. The economic gap is so huge that it powerfully feeds the fascist rhetoric that is growing everywhere. Brazil, Hungary, Philippines, United States, the radical wing, uh, right wings in Europe and Latin America, all fa fascist governments have the same structure. The and Gatahi explained the fascist state. In fascism, the state is far less totalitarian than it is suicidal. There is fascism, in fascism, a realized nihilism. Unlike the totalitarian state, which does its utmost to seal all possible lines of flight, fascism is constructed on an intense line of flight, which it transforms into a line of pure destruction and abolition. Christian Protestantism has also or is also witnessing the erosion of its core values. Even our own beloved church, the USA, is crumbling down in many ways. The economic system has hit us, and we are just another expression of the new liberal market. 
Just like our society, there are few rich churches surviving, middle-class churches dwindling down, and small and poor, ch poor churches declining every day. The majority of our churches is less than 100 members. We are also closing churches, sell, selling buildings, and trying mergers. We are desperately trying new ways of surviving, but, but for the most part, it seems to be only cosmetics. Our denomination doesn't care much about its structures, my friend, and, and it depends on each individual church to survive. We foster new programs of evangelism. We create new templates for more live worship services. And we bring in experts and coaches who always hold the key to our success. However, we don't tackle the source of our injustice, which is rooted in the socioeconomic differences. And let me give you this. This is something that I've been telling for, for so long. It is not a nice thing to say. And I would suggest, can we ever talk about equalizing pastor salaries? Making sure every pastor has enough to eat to survive. At the beginning, we are all desperate to get a church. And once we do get a church, we just dive into that job, hoping our church will survive. Meanwhile, so many small churches everywhere, so many are struggling to survive, and pastors are ending up in two, three, four congregations to make ends meet. Each one is responsible for oneself. A former student of mine found, uh, uh, talked to me and said, Claudio, I, I, this church came talk to me, and they're offering me 19 and a half hours, and I didn't understand. She <laughs> said, because if they offer 20 hours, they have to pay uh, health insurance, and they don't have the money. In cases like this, I keep thinking, what is the difference between the Citibank and our church? We are the creatures of the market. We are thrown in this suicidal state. And you must fend for yourself. So after you leave this seminary, if you find something, good for you. If you cannot find something, yeah, you're not that good. As Mahmoud Darwish was uh, saying, here no one can find anyone. Once I was visiting a Presbyterian seminary and I heard one of the professors saying, we here prepare pastors for the richer churches. And I left not knowing what to say. And I don't know what we can promise success. And say, no worry, my friends, the world is living under pure destruction abolitions. But we'll get you a great church whose package you won't regret. You'll be safe. What is the difference between a package and a call? What is the difference? And here's everywhere in most churches. This way of living and thinking makes it impossible for us to think in the church as a whole equal body with every pastor and every professor should be honored as Imago Day, not only spiritually but concretely with equal salaries, differences where you live, but at least you wake up in the morning know that your kids will be fed. Oh, somebody told me, this is communism. Are you a communist? And we are in this habit hole for so long. We have inspired and ingrained this capitalistic value so much in our bones and the bones of our institutions and our theologies that we lost the ability to think and create something different. We feel the emotions created by capitalism. Fear, grudge, anxiety, eagerness, exhaustion. Desperation for the few opportunities available. And those opportunities are decreasing. Our heads are full of forgetfulness. There is here a timeless present. And here no one can find anyone. No one remembers how we went out. 
600 years of colonialism, where capitalism, enlightenment, modernity, fascism, human exceptionalism, white supremacy, patriarchal, hierarchical, heterosexual, plantation systems, liberalism, class struggle, and the Anthropocene are those intense traces who have shattered our tiles and shards for others to reassemble into mirrors reflecting their images over ours. Everything was stolen from us, and now capitalism under the rule of law and jurisprudence have given us, have given to this who, who have stolen lands the aura of righteousness. The earth, have, the earth has been ripped apart, and there's very little left in for us in our future generations. And we are losing a sense of community, right? To be a church today is, is hard. Because it's hard to have a sense of community of living together. And you are spinning, spinning like headless chicken around the system that keeps beating us up. And we will do so until we disappear unless we change. We talk about rights, but we do not talk about responsibilities to one another, right? or the responsibilities to the land. Our egos are always in the way we establish a brand and uh, propagandize it. I have a website too. I remember a famous theologian once saying, oh, I saw this church following my theology. And again, I didn't know what to say. Do we write a theology for someone to follow? Or do we do this together? It's that's why the, the throwing the papers, because you get whatever is important to you. The rest of it you throw away. You throw away. Because we're all full of mistakes and we do not hold the truth by ourselves. But the infinity of traces of coloniality has ripped us apart from real symbolic networks with millions of other beings and shaped us into imaginary individual cells locked in abstract networks of relations. In theology, the promising approach of experience as key to our theological thinking took a wrong turn and shifted our theology into a mirror of ourselves. From objective detached scholarship to individual but still detached scholarships, the ego trips of our time in a vast inventory of all the infinities of traces in our times, as Darwish said again yesterday, shattered on the tiles, reflecting their image over ours. We once had roots. We knew our ancestors and the cyclical line that was the future. But colonialism came, and we were uprooted. We lost our past and had to invent a future that never existed. If we want to make an inventory of our time and understanding ourselves in this timeless present, we must start thinking how colonization has been the vicious historical process of cutting off our roots, of uprooting our very selves from the self of the land. We no longer count ourselves as part of the larger world or animals are also part of ourselves. When we think about self, we just think about our individual self. But I cannot count myself without that tree because the tree is part of my self. We no longer listen to the birds and hear in their songs our own singing, God's own voice. We now see ourselves in discrete way. That leaf right there doesn't have anything to do with us, even though candomblé in Umbanda and other African religions cannot have their religion without leaves. That river below our house is just a river. The topsoil is a thing only good for food. The trees around our houses are beautiful decoration and aesthetics. Not as living beings, are they? Trees and people, not as living beings. Whose religious knowledges have you inherited? 
in your inventory? Whose religious knowledges and ideas have you inherited? The clothes I wear today mirrors that which have happened to all of us. My skin worn by knowledge is foreign to me, and I carry the death of so many. And Ernesto Cardenal said, everything we do, we must remember the dead. He would say, you go to an airport, you remember the dead. You go on the street, you remember the dead. Because as Walter Benjamin says, if we forget those who have died, and if we lose this fight, they will lose it too. I don't know about my story. I don't know about my great-grandmother. My mom says that she was a nurse. But she was who? She was belonged to the people. But who was the people? The people was the indigenous people. But she could not be indigenous, no, God forbid. So she couldn't be a shaman. She had to be a nurse. Who am I? to say that I belong to. We have been talking about ancestry, but who are my ancestors? And not only people. The ancestry of my life are rivers, are forests, are animals. And, 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 and where do I speak from? Well, can I speak from a Latinx people? True, but what part of the Latinx people can I speak from? If I am from Ecuador, there's 22 people only uh, uh, in Ecuador, and I know none of them. Can I speak to, uh, on, on their behalf? To whom do I belong? See, the intensity of fringes of colonialism leaves no inventory. It is the eraser of our memory. We live with our minds filled with forgetfulness. Christianity has the promise to help us expand our belonging from the idea of many and one. And the many and one, it is life together with those who I do not accept from other faith. A borderless border of relationalities with my neighbors. So when I speak to you, I speak with 10,000 voices within me. I will tend to go into a habit hole where I am the sum of all parts, but no, I am a legion. I am a whole country amidst others, all speaking on different language, all of them confusing me as guiding me. So in me, I have the oppressors and I have the oppressed. I have the colonizers and I have the colonized. My past was stolen and so my future and I live in a timeless present. So to do an inventory, my friends, is to, do, is to pay attention to what Mabembe calls memory, potentiality, and future, futurity. Memory, potentiality and futurity, and I will spend, I will move beyond that. And I'll go to conclusion. Going back to Gramsci, the starting point of critical elaborations is the consciousness of what one really is in knowing thyself. Remember what Calvin said, knowing oneself and knowing God? What is that knowing in as a product of the historical processes to date, which has deposited a new and infinity of traces without leaving an inventory. As I leave, I want to ask you a cluster of questions. What brought you to this school? Whose voices did you hear? And what did you came to do? And who? came before you. When you know yourself, who belongs to your own self? What is the composition of God in yourself? 
Does this God participate too in the history, in that vicious history? Does God participate in the land, swim with the rivers, sing with the songbirds, run with the jaguars, run up the trees like the squirrels do, dance with the owls, love like elephants, take care of the sea like the coral reefs? What is the place of the land in your theology? I remember I visited a, a, a very simple Baptist church in Sonora Desert in Mexico. And I was in love with that church. We spent the whole day, it was baptism day. You know, for Baptists, they, they do this really well. And they don't like just sprinkles, sprinkles of water. It's, it's, no, you have to have water. You know, they had in this church, it was outside in Santo Antonio. And they had a water reservoir. And then that day, they took the water to cook. And then they did the baptism. And then after that, the kids went into the swimming pool. See how the water creates a whole cosmology of faith? In the desert. That's what I'm talking about. What memories were taken away from you? What forms of forgetfulness fill your head and that allows you not to remember? Who and what are your ancestors? Who picked you? To whom and to what do you belong, human and non-human? When you do this inventory, what are the futures you can envision in the present for you and others? Are you locked into waiting for Jesus? To the end of the world? Is heavens the only available future? What does that Jesus have to do with this? Is the future only for you? Or do you have a theology that holds a future for more than humans as well? What are the infinity of traces that live in your body and the bodies of your communities? What is the inventory of knowing now ourselves and knowing God that we need to do right now? What's our starting point? We'll continue tomorrow. Thank you.